Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you now as we read and study the scriptures together. May our confidence in in the Lord Jesus grow. We pray your spirit would be our teacher and that we might know you better and love you more. Amen. Well, please, as you sit down, um, turn back in the church Bibles to page 288 to 1 Samuel 17, page 288. Sometimes uh, different views of the world collide in unexpected ways. Uh, A couple of years back, Linda and I attended a, a friend's son's bar mitzvah. It was the first time that I visited a synagogue and it was a very interesting experience. Uh, The ancient religion of Judaism in the context of a modern and secular world. So all the men are required to wear a a skull cap, a kippah. Um, I was required to wear one as well. So when I arrived there I was taken into a room and presented with a choice. Uh, much to the amusement of my wife, who of course was sitting up in the balcony looking down to see what I'd got on my head. But I mean, everyone had to have one of these things on. And while some clearly followed a more traditional design, others were a little more contemporary. So there were designer skull caps. There were Nike skull caps, complete with the swoosh logo. Uh, there was even Manchester United skull caps. Uh, the clash of ancient and modern views of the world. Well, 1 Samuel 17 is an account of another clash of worldviews, a clash between those who acknowledge the reality of the living God and those who deny it. That, of course, is what is at the heart of this famous, if caricatured, story of David and Goliath. And once you've understood that, you can see how remarkably contemporary this ancient account really is. It is one thing to live as a Christian in a world that is indifferent to what you believe, But how do you live as a Christian in a world that is openly defiant in its rejection of Jesus Christ? Well, here I think the account of David and Goliath has much to teach us. Now, of course, there is much in this account that is unique. Uh, So at this particular point in redemptive history, Israel was a theocracy. Uh, Many of the ideological struggles of the day took place on a battlefield. Uh, Today, as Peter puts it in the New Testament, God's people are scattered throughout the world and our struggle fundamentally is not against flesh and blood, but as Paul puts it, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Nevertheless, the battle for Christians in a hostile and unbelieving world is no less real. Well, if you see chapter chapter 17, verse 1, it opens with a standoff. The Philistines gathered their forces for war. They stood on one hill, and on the other side of the valley stood the, Philistines, stood the Israelites. Step forward, Goliath, verse 4. Now here, of course, the contemporary reader is struggling with childhood sentiment, not battlefield terror. But if we reduced Goliath to a comic book caricature, that would have not been the case for the Israelites, or indeed for the first readers of this book, Everything about the description in verses 4 to 7 would evoke terror amongst the witnesses and readers alike. Uh, Here was the SAS of his day, an enemy who was experienced and tall and well-equipped. Everything about him looked both impressive and intimidating. 
And of course his appearance was matched with his attitude, verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not Philistine and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now the question our writer wants us to ask is this. What do you see? What do you see? After all, you think of the Lord's rebuke to Samuel in chapter 16. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. What do you see in Goliath? What do you see in a world that is openly defiant in its rejection of Jesus Christ? You see, appearances can be deceptive. Well, the first thing to note from this chapter is this. Unbelief fears the world and questions God's deliverer. Unbelief fears the world and questions God's deliverer. It's striking to see the Israelites' reaction to Goliath's defiance. If Goliath looked bad, he sounded worse. And on hearing the Philistines' words, verse 11, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Yeah, both infantry and commander-in-chief are rattled and it looks like the battle's over before it's even begun. So if in fear and trepidation they held their ground in verse 11, by the time Goliath has finished his saber-rattling for the second time in verse 23, all heroic pretense evaporates in an undignified scramble for safety, verse 24. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now, of course, in many ways, Israel's fear seems completely understandable. What people could see was terrifying. If you've ever been in an Eastern Bloc country or some sort of fragile African state and you've been approached by somebody from uh, the police or from the army, you'll know what a terrifying experience it is. Their reaction was understandable. Goliath was experienced, he was tall, he was well-equipped. And if there had been any competitive male bravado beforehand, it doubtless dissipated as soon as Saul asked for any volunteers. And yet, although Israel's fear was understandable, it wasn't actually justifiable. See, man looks at the outward appearance, and appearances can be deceptive. Fear of the world is really a mark of unbelief. And yet it is remarkably easy to be intimidated by the world. Whether it's the hostility of a secular press or an antagonistic work colleague or a sceptical family member. So the secular media and atheist academics regularly rubbish the work of the Emmanuel Schools Foundation because of its Christian ethos. Regularly. 
The curriculum is depicted as obscurantist. The discipline policy as totalitarian. The good exam results artificial and deceptive. Now, the anti-Christian defiance of the world is increasingly hostile. And sometimes such hostility is directed not just at institutions, but at individuals. So Ed Greening, who for five years had served on an adoption panel for Wiltshire County Council, was recently sacked. Why? Because he does not believe that same-sex couples should be able to adopt children. So he was sacked. It is surprising, isn't it, how much intolerance there is in our supposedly tolerant society. But Jesus says we should not fear men. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It is a mark of unbelief to fear the world. And yet if unbelief tends towards an enlarged view of the enemy, it also invariably has a diminished view of God's deliverer. Such was the case for both Eliab and Saul. Actually, the Lord's rebuke to Samuel would have been a fitting warning to both of them. The Lord does not look at things as man looks at them. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. See, Eliab viewed David with outright contempt, much as Goliath did. So as David joins his brothers on the battlefield, Eliab claims, verse 28, to be able to see into David's heart. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. In reality, of course, he sees nothing at all. He asks a question to which he already assumes he knows the answer in verse 28. Why have you come down here? And yet his comments reveal just how superficial his assessment of God's deliverer king really was. So he accuses David of abandoning the sheep when, verse 20, David had left the flock with a shepherd. He accuses David of pride and wickedness when, verse 20, he was humble and obedient to his father's commands. He accuses David of being self-serving when, verse 19, David had actually brought food to provide for his brothers. He accuses David of coming to merely watch the battle. Little knowing that David had come to win the battle instead. Sometimes people view God's deliverer with nothing less than contempt. So indeed it was for King David's greater son, Jesus. Those who passed by, Matthew puts it, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. You, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Now Saul, on the other hand, is less vitriolic, but no less disdainful in his assessment of God's deliverer king. He saw only a hopeless contest between David's weakness and Goliath's strength. Verse 33. You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he has been fighting, been a fighting man from his youth. 
But then God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, alongside an enlarged view of the enemy, unbelief is also marked by a diminished view of the deliverer. Some people have hated Christ and his people with all the contempt of an Eliab, whilst for others it is the patronising scorn of a Saul. Perhaps Jesus was a good man, a teacher, a prophet. But in all honesty, the world considers him to be nothing more. You see, unbelief might respect Jesus, but it will not bow down before him as king. Well, secondly, belief is concerned for God's honour and confident in God's deliverance. Belief is concerned for God's honour and confidence in God's deliverance. Actually, as you read this chapter, it is a remarkably well-crafted account of this clash between Israel and the Philistines. The opening of the chapter sets the scene with these opposing armies standing on either side of the valley. Uh, the Philistine lay down the gauntlet in the imposing figure of Goliath. Fear grips the Israelite camp, verse 11. And then, if you like, the camera fades to scene 2 and the conversation in a Bethlehem home, verse 12. And here you're reintroduced to David, one of seven brothers, the youngest son of Jesse, the shepherd king of God's people. Now, of course, at this, up to this point, David's kingship is hidden from the people, even if it's known to his family. Now, David's older brothers are serving with Saul's army in the Valley of Elah, and so David is dispatched by his anxious father with provisions and a request. Verse 18. See how your brothers are, and bring back some assurance from them. All of which brings David to the battlefront and scene 3, verse 20. And what David encounters on arrival wasn't, it seems, what he was expecting. Goliath, verse 23, is shouting his usual defiance and David heard it. And whilst in verse 24 the Israelites are concerned for their lives, David, it seems, is concerned for God's honour. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's the first time that our narrator records any words of David. And what he says suddenly highlights what has been missing thus far in Israel's military anxieties. For David speaks of the reality of the living God. And what matters supremely for David is the honour that he is due. So again in verse 45, as David addresses Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I wonder how much of the way we live denies the reality of the living God and robs him of the honour that is due to his name. 
I can think of church meetings that I have sat in, church meetings that I have chaired, when all the pressures and difficulties of the discussion seems to have all but eclipsed the beliefs that we claim to own. Our God is the living God. And yet it is surprisingly easy to treat him as a sleeping and peripheral member of our committees. And even if we do acknowledge that our God is the living God, I wonder how often do we rob him of the honour that is due to his name? Now, it may well be done on committees too, but it's just as easy in the workplace or in the home or even at church on a Sunday. As God puts it through the prophet Malachi hundreds of years later, a son honours his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? And for those of you in the world of business perhaps, the pressures of the markets, the challenge of the competition, the, the, the difficulties with cash flow. How easy to find yourself valuing profit more than people. Or the academic world, with all the challenges of student-assessed teaching, the relentless pressure to get your research published. Are you aiming at academic integrity or academic respectability? Do you want to do the right thing or do you want to be seen doing the expected thing? Or in the home? Do we dishonour God in the way we perhaps treat our spouse or the way we raise our children? Or on a Sunday? Do we dishonour God in worship that claims God's forgiveness whilst living a life that defies God's rule. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? And yet if it's true that belief is concerned with God's honour, it is also confident in God's victory. You read this account and the contrast between the people and David is very marked, isn't it? For whilst the people are full of doubt, David is full of confidence. So Saul questions whether David can do anything and David's response is to express his settled confidence in God. You see, the Lord's past deliverance is for David the grounds for confidence in the Lord's future deliverance. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, it is, or it should be, the confidence of all those who trust in Christ. As Paul puts in the New Testament, I know who I have believed in. And I'm convinced, I am persuaded, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. He really is able to guard what you have entrusted to him for that day. See, you may feel that your faith in Christ is faltering. Remember, as David puts it in verse 47, the battle is the Lord's, victory is his. He has dealt in the cross fully and finally with sin, death and Satan. 
What matters is not the hesitancy of your trust, but the certainty of his deliverance. What God has done for you in Jesus on the cross secures what he promises to do for you in the future. Paul puts it like this in Romans, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? So many things can actually undermine our confidence in God's deliverance. Difficulties imagined or real. Now sometimes we seem to be at the mercy of our feelings, don't we? Am I really a Christian? Me? Other times the pressures of life seem more tangible and, and they can take their toll too. Health worries. Marriage difficulties, pressure at work or, or concerns about children, anxieties about finance. Belief is not only concerned with the Lord's honour, it is also confident in the Lord's victory. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced, I am persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him for that day. Well, let me, as we finish, just draw your attention to the question that Saul asks at the end of this chapter. We, we didn't actually read it, but it comes in verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? You see, Saul knew who David was. He was the gifted man whose musical skills calmed his troubled conscience. He, he knew who David was, and yet he, he didn't know who David was. And when you've heard someone say the kind of extraordinary things that David said, and do the kind of remarkable things that he did, you, you can understand anyone asking, who is this man? That's all actually wants to know whose son David is, but it amounts to the same question. In many Middle Eastern countries, if you want to know the measure of a man, you need to know who his father is. So Saul's question makes sense. Whose son is he? Who is this man? After all, who, 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 who does he think he is? Striding onto the battlefield and offering strategic military advice to the king. And what does he think he's doing, entering a battle when he's all but defenceless, weak and without armour before nine feet of armour-clad Philistine might? Who does he think he is? Who is this man? You see, David in the Bible is not only a model of belief, he is, as here, the means of salvation. David not only trusts in God's deliverance, he is God's deliverer. And so there is immense encouragement in this ancient story. For here, there is the king who reassures his doubting people and delivers a victory that is as unimaginable as it is decisive. See, here is a king who comes amidst his troubled people and promises victory. Verse 32, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. 
your servant will go and fight him. And the reassurance of word is met with a triumph of deed. So David triumphed over the Philistines with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And you know, in David's words and deeds, we hear the reassurance of the greater king, the greater deliverer to whom David's life points, Jesus. The question all the way through the Gospels, isn't it? Who is this man? Let no one lose heart. See, that really is God's word to you this morning. If you actively trust in Jesus, let no one lose heart. Whatever the doubts within and fears without, do not lose heart. In Jesus, God has forgiven all your sins. He has cancelled the written code with its regulations that stood against you and that stood opposed to you. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's a wonderful prologue uh, halfway through Henry V, Shakespeare's Henry V, where the king comes amongst his trouble and fearful people before the Battle of Agincourt. And it is as God depicts it here with David in 1 Samuel 17. Oh now, who will behold the royal captain of this ruined band? Walking from watch to watch, from tent to tent, let him cry praise and glory on his head. For forth he goes and visits all his hosts, bids them good morrow with a modest smile, and calls them friends, brothers, and countrymen. Upon his royal face there is no note of how dread an army hath enrounded him. Nor doth he dedicate one jot of colour unto the weary and all-watched night, but freshly looks and overbears a taint with cheerful semblance and sweet majesty. That every wretch, pining and pale before, beholding him, plucks comfort from his looks. A largest universal like the sun his liberal eye doth give to every one, thawing cold fear that mean and gentle all behold as may unworthiness define. A little touch of Harry in the night. See, here is the king who comes amongst his trouble and fearful people and says, do not lose heart. What a great encouragement to know that in King David's greater son, Jesus, we have a king who has won such a decisive victory for us.